Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, everyone. This week's guest is Richard Foster Fletcher. He is the CEO of Neuralpath.io, an artificial intelligence advisory and strategy practice. Formerly with Oracle Corporation, he is a graduate of the MIT Artificial Intelligence Strategy course with the Sloan School of Management and a contributing author to the book AI, The Future of Finance, published by Wiley. Richard founded the Milton Keynes Artificial Intelligence, MKAI, community, and he is the host of the Boundless Designing Our Digital Future podcast, of which I was the very first guest. He called in from the United Kingdom, where I'm originally from, and where there's a great deal of interest and activity in things to do with artificial intelligence and change. We found ourselves often talking about the politics and economics of the social change that we see as being necessary for the safe development of artificial intelligence as a force that can become powerful and useful in our society. Richard touched on how far we have to go when he talked about how retail businesses today are optimized for their profitability at the expense of what's best for the consumer. The example he gave was toilet paper, because during the pandemic, the supply chains were interrupted to the point where it was no longer profitable to sell it in the quantities that people wanted, hence shortages of something that there was no greater demand for than at any other time. Now, we've become used to that kind of equation ruling our lives through the markets. Adam Smith and Ayn Rand have a lot to answer for in this respect, because that's preventing us from reaching the kind of society where everyone is taken care of. A society where everyone is taken care of might be called a utopia, and there have been a lot of visions of those in the past. The word utopian seems inevitably to be followed by the word socialist, but it's not necessary. Just think back to visions from fiction of utopias that you've encountered. Was there anyone in those visions that was still wanting because they were poor, hungry, sicker than they needed to be in that future? You see, when we think about the far future and what we might be able to create, we're naturally drawn to envisage one where everyone is taken care of, where no one has wants. We don't feel that there's an unnecessary competition there between the haves and the have-nots, that to take from the haves to give to the have-nots would be unreasonable, because we envisage a future that has enough for everyone. And yet we seem to be unable to get there. We now have abundance and wealth and technology that would have been beyond the dreams of royalty, let alone common people, a hundred years ago, and yet we've still managed to create inequality that grinds and hurts people. 
There's something called the Gini coefficient, which measures the degree of inequality in a society, and it's been shown that the higher that level of inequality, the unhappier people are in a society. In other words, we feel better when there's less distance between the best off among us and the worst off. So while those utopian visions from science fiction seem to always show people wearing the same kind of jumpsuit and being very well educated about just how the economics of their society works for everyone, it doesn't have to be exactly that way. But it does have to be a lot better than what we've got right now in terms of equality. Technology holds up a mirror to us. The only question is, do we look in it? More than one AI researcher has said that the reason they work on artificial intelligence is because the more they learn about AI, the more they learn about themselves. That's what's available for those who are willing to look there. As I look into the future, I believe that we will shortly see a great deal of progress in medicine as a result of the work that's being done to combat the pandemic. And as I've said before, it's about time. I personally am frustrated at the lack of progress in medicine. I can point to numerous examples of promises that have not been fulfilled. Forty years ago, I heard the breathless news that there was a new technique for growing enamel in teeth again, regenerating it so that fillings would become a thing of the past. Strangely enough, that doesn't seem to have happened. I recently heard exactly the same announcement again. We'll see. If I go to the doctor's office, it looks the same as it did 30 years ago. They're taking my temperature with something stuck in my ear instead of under my tongue, but that's about it. It's still the same, I'll get this word right if it kills me, spigmomanometer, the thing that they wrap around your arm and pump up to take your blood pressure. They still listen to you with a stethoscope. And they still have the same unsatisfactory answers about things like preventative cancer screening. My idea of progress in that domain would be that when you walk through the door, you get a MRI and PET scan from the door frame as you go in. And that would otherwise be the only reason for going to the doctor's office, because they would know via remote scans of devices hooked up to you or swimming in your bloodstream exactly what the state of your health was at any time otherwise, and that they would know from your DNA profile just what treatments and therapies and drugs would work best for you. And yet we're nowhere close to that. I keep being reminded of the Star Trek episode where McCoy goes back to the 30s, and when he realizes where he is and the state of medicine at that time, breaks down crying at the thought of people being sewed up like garments, sutures, and needles, which of course is what we still use for putting people back together. It's about time that that field was revolutionized, and I really hope that that's what we're going to get. Towards the end of this segment of the interview, there were some network problems, and part of the interview was lost, only a few seconds, I've cut out the sentence fragment so that it still makes sense, but you may notice some interruptions. With that in mind, here we go with the interview with Richard Foster Fletcher. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Richard Foster Fletcher calling in from the United Kingdom. He is a keynote speaker on the topic of the Artificial Intelligence Roadmap to 2030, 
He is the founder of NeuralPath.io. He's the chair of the Milton Keynes Artificial Intelligence Group and the host of the Boundless Podcast, which I was the very first guest on. So turnabout is fair play. Here we are. Richard, welcome. Wow, that is, that is such an impressive resume. I want to talk about all of it. It's all on topic for this show. Frankly, one of my reasons for having you on the show is that after reading that list of accomplishments, it makes me more motivated to get off my rear end and create something. So let's start learning. Tell us how you got started in the field of AI. Well, Peter, it's really great to be here. And you were my numero uno. And I love hosting my podcast now, but I was very nervous all those months ago, the first time that we did our first episode. So thank you for launching the Boundless Podcast. It meant the world to me. Artificial intelligence, if you look at a long enough timeline for humanity, then whether you agree with Ray Kurzweil on the singularity or not, but if you talk about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, and our, our future is living somehow in some way as and with machines. Artificial intelligence for me is a companion. I don't see it as a technology that sits somewhere in a stack. If you look at things like health tech and uh, 5G, for example, all these things are just amassing incredible amounts of data. 5G is going to be about 1.5 billion devices coming online over the next five years. Um, trillions of gigabytes of data being created. And it's meaningless unless we can make sense of it. And we can't make sense of it without this companion, which is AI. What was going on in your life when the importance of this first occurred to you? I was just thinking about the universe all those years ago and about our place in it. And it sounds wacky, but I'll just be honest and then say how this arose for me is that if we were ever to interact with another intelligence of some kind in the cosmos, they would have have to have traveled an enormous amount of distance. I mean, at current estimates, it's something like 81,000 years to get at rocket speed to any planet that could be potentially habitable. Vast space. And so the, the things that arrived, if they ever would, wouldn't be bionic life. They would be machines. Okay, we could argue about some sort of space-time warping. Yeah, that, that's possible. That hovers somewhere between science fiction and reality at the moment. And so that, that's where it began for me in terms of understanding that this was a space where, in artificial intelligence, where philosophy met technology, met business, and sort of met theology as well. And in that sense, you've, you've got a, something that you can think about and work on for the rest of your life, being comfortable living with incredible questions, you know, in some ways mirroring what religion of the past was. And I talked about, you know, AI and I thought about alternative intelligence. And the most fascinating thing for me is what are we and what aren't we? And in the journey to where we are now, which is you and I sitting in, on different continents, Peter, having a conversation in real time, and not only that, that we are our kindred spirits, we're friends, so to speak, which we would never have been able to achieve in the past. And that's a, 
as a result of the incredible technology that we've developed. So to compare ourselves to other animals is a very difficult comparison to make. Not to say that dolphins aren't incredibly clever, they are. And ants are brilliant at what they do, and that's why there's so many ants around. But they're, they're not having Zoom calls. And there are, there are no aliens to compare ourselves against. And so artificial intelligence and alternative intelligence is the only hope that we have currently. Mimic and create echoes of the human mind in the machine, which potentially allows us to have a deeper understanding of what we are and what we aren't, and what we mean by things like sentience and consciousness. And um, what this incredible complex thing is in our heads that we call the human mind. Wow, that's actually incredibly poetic. I sense uh, comparisons. I'm drawn to make comparisons with people like James Burke, who you might know uh, from the UK, and uh, other uh, deep thinkers who, whose minds are drawn to these grand visions. It's like some of the best of hard science fiction. Is, is that an appealing medium for you? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truisms that, that come about, I think, from that space. I wouldn't call myself a, a big science fiction reader or, or fan. But I think where, where science fiction touches science fact is where the imagination can really take off. And ironically, of course, any jobs that don't involve imagination and creativity are probably under threat from artificial intelligence and automation in the next decade if they're not already. Again, just keeping on the space analogies a little longer, but I'm sure we'll, we'll move on to other things. You know, we, we have things like the Kardashev scale, which we are not yet at level one. And I see you nodding, Peter. And we know there's three levels of this. And again, it, it's hovering between science fiction and science fact. And, and level three is where you are truly harnessing the power of the universe which would allow incredible, I mean, incredible is not even the word, there isn't a word for it, levels of compute, which could create whole solar system type simulations. That the road to get there is quite stunning in terms of embracing the natural adventurers and discoverers that we are innately, and potentially a path to incredible sentience as well where we, we embrace the true humanism spirit as guardians and lovers of this planet and beyond. I mean, that again just shows where your, your mind is drawn to these grand visions. And I can see how that's propelling you in, in so much of what you're doing at the moment. Let's talk about the group you started in Milton Keynes because that's been incredibly active and you've had a number of events, some of which I've been able to attend remotely. Thank you very much for making those available in a networked form. Tell us what that group has been doing and what your involvement with it is. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Peter, and thank you for attending as well where you have and contributing to those events. They started out, I guess, as a humble meetup in, in the area that I live, which is Milton Keynes, hence the MKAI. And I think we've been forced online, as everybody has, with events. And initially, we saw that as a, a frustrating challenge. And now we see just how much of the world this has opened up. And I don't think we've lost what it is to have a base 
and to care about the comings and goings and development of the Milton Keynes smart city, but actually the embracing of people all over the globe has been quite remarkable over the last three months for us to experience. The next three events, we're doing three using AI for good events over the summer. We only have one speaker from the UK now across the 12 speakers that we've uh, very kindly agreed to speak for us. And we've, we've tried to purposely bridge the, the Venn diagram of people that experience and, and apply AI in their, in their worlds and the people that develop. And not only that, we tried to um, get speakers, what we have successfully, that have come out of corporate and have come out of um, academia and come out of what, you know, you might think of the third sector and those that are are really just focused on um, on providing, you know, services for good in the world, whether that be not-for-profits or or other. And I think we, we did that all successfully, but we found something a little different. We found that we... We're developing a community across business, across data science, and across thinkers and philosophers. And we, we seem to be creating this space. Okay, it's a virtual space where people know that we'll have some good content and know that we'll have good speakers, but more of a sense of feeling at home and feeling that this, this is their tribe. Um, and I think there is a tribe now, and I think it's global. I mentioned, you know, you and I having this kindred spirit, despite the different lives that we've had and the different places we've lived. And I, I don't think you and I see borders, physical, geographical borders like people did in the past. But this group of people needs to be on the right side of history. My feeling is that artificial intelligence and other deep technologies will not work for us unless we work really hard to make them work for us. And you were one of my inspirational mentors on this, Peter, that you can't put something back in the box. You go, you know, go back decades ago, you could not put nuclear fission back in the box that led to nuclear bombs. The person, you know, I'm go deep again, but the person that invented fire, you know, if that person hadn't been born, we would still have fire. This is not one moment where one woman suddenly puts two sticks together. These things, to me, feel like they have an evolutionary path of their own. You know, will, will we get um, nuclear fusion? We don't know. It, if it can happen, it will happen if the timeline is long enough in that evolutionary sense. Artificial general intelligence, will it happen? Well, yes, if it can, with a long enough timeline for it to appear. So we can't put these things back in the box. And they appear to be naturally working against us to create more inequality, um, to create more division. Unless this group of people, this wide group of people from all sorts of backgrounds and colors and genders and and, uh, disciplines find a way to apply this incredibly powerful technology that will not go back in the box to fundamentally address the massive wrongs in the world, which mostly come out of inequality and bias. But as a result of that, we get things like cataclysmic climate chaos. And we get, you know, the the problems that we see in the West is that we have everything that we could ever dream to have had 
and most of us are still pretty miserable. Mm. As you say, kindred spirits, I'd like to say that you're taking the words out of my mouth, but actually I'm taking notes and seeing what I can poach to use later on because you've got a, a real facility with words there and poetic turns of phrase. So if we now look at, okay, this is some of the challenges that we face in the, the future, there is an indeterminate amount of time before we could be in competition with intelligent and aware artificial intelligence. What does it mean right now? What can and should we do about these issues now? How does AI affect the world we live in at the moment? I mean, there's a lot in that, Peter, as, as you know yourself as well. There's... There's somebody who said to me recently that they considered the biggest problem in the world to be the number of very powerful leaders who they felt still had one foot in the past. And if, if you want to just take the stereotypes on this, they're talking about the number of middle-aged, middle-of-the-road kind of white males that are running these companies and, and looking after each other. And they thought it was just going to be near impossible, if not impossible, to ever get these people crowbarred out of these positions of authority. And I fundamentally disagreed. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that you know, these people can't change or that there's, there's problems with that. I celebrate the world that we have. And I think most of, you know, many of the things that we have in the world are just unbelievably wonderful and incredible. I don't believe in criticizing anybody for where we've got to. But when you look at the, what's been happening, in terms of pandemics, viruses, uh, wildfires, locust swarms, not to mention the storms that are increasing with climate change. Um, the uprising against these leaders from women, um, from uh, female leaders showing a different way of leading, think Finland and New Zealand uh, parties, and then the, you know, the protests on the street now and the Black Lives Matter, I think actually this is a very achievable task to get these leaders either to change or to step aside. And we're seeing examples of that in corporations now where CEOs are stepping aside in, in small numbers, yes, but it's starting to happen. And investment firms that are starting to insist on different uh, board of director makeups or you know, different um, uh, leadership um, from, from what we've seen in the past. So I think that is just dominoes that are falling over naturally. And there's, a, there's almost not a lot of work that the likes of you and I need to do in that area. So in contrast to them thinking that was impossible, what I think is near impossible is how do we steer big tech to better outcomes? The people that work in big technology companies, your Googles, your Microsofts, your Amazons, they're some of the smartest people that they ever walk this earth. They know exactly what they're doing and they're heavily engineered and optimized for certain parameters and those happen to be at the moment profits. Then people suspect that they're engineered towards customer experience and user experience. They're not, not at all. And we saw that recently when we had no toilet rolls in the stores. That the reason we had no toilet rolls is not because there weren't any. We had no toilet rolls because all of the big supermarkets' algorithms were engineered for profitability. And that meant when toilet roll was no longer in the profit margin ranges that they wanted, they stopped buying it. It's as simple as that. And so 
how do you get big tech to change its, its algorithms and its optimization processes for good? It seems to me that only when people take their, their career in their hands and, and lobby internally as they've been doing at Google and Amazon, do we start to see any positive change? We've seen IBM and others step back from facial recognition technology, um, primarily because of the fact that it's racially biased, which is good, but we shouldn't not do <laughs> um, computer vision for facial, you know, facial recognition because it's racially biased. We should do it because it's working against people fundamentally. Hmm. And you're referring there to some recent news that IBM, Amazon, and other companies that have facial recognition technologies have stopped supplying those to police forces until some conditions that I'm not clear about are satisfied. And you're talking, for the benefit of anyone living in the far future listening to this, about some very current, very dramatic and uh, significant upheavals within our society that give me the sense of a rendezvous with destiny that is in our future or is in many ways arriving right now. I think you and I already had that sense of a rendezvous with destiny with artificial intelligence. We could see the way the dice were going to fall and that the development of AI into certain capabilities would precipitate various crises. And the world right now seems poised and ready for a rendezvous with destiny of some form. It's arrived in one way with coronavirus. Now we're seeing a much greater appetite for change with racial division and the approach of the police towards policing in just about every country on earth. So AI does have, I think, a lot of impact on this in that it's increasingly used as a tool in many of the institutions, as you referred to, for instance, retail, that are going to be impacted by calls for greater transparency, diversity, and less bias. And we've seen that bias can creep into an organization's AI through no one's intention. Is this something that we address at the human level or the technology level? Where do we get the most leverage? It's a great question, Peter, because you have to ask whether or not this technology is just holding a mirror up to society and to business and to individuals. No matter how much you might take issue with the leadership of certain countries, there is an element of we get and we have what we deserve. Some might call this a black mirror. Technology AI has definitely been a black mirror to show the, the cracks and the biases in the system. Where I think we miss the point is that we, we mark the homework the same, even though you know, the, the coursework is different, to use an analogy there. We, uh, let me explain this through self-driving cars. If, if I'm driving down the road, uh, Peter, at one o'clock in the morning, and, and I crash into a lamppost, 
the police line of inquiry is almost certainly going to be on me. How fit was I to drive? Um, was I sober? Was I tired? Was I concentrating? Was I on anything? And they're, they're not going to question my decision making in that moment. They're going to question my suitability to be behind the wheel. So we excuse almost anybody doing anything behind the wheel, so long as they were concentrating and awake and aware and not under the influence. Switch that around, and if an autonomous vehicle is to kill somebody, all the questions are on the decision-making. What did the algorithm do? Can it be explained? Why did it do that? Why did it make that choice? So we ask very different questions of technology to people to start with. Um, and that's, that's fine, but then we can't start switching in and switching out AI and human judges because the same problem there. The, the beauty of life is in the shades of gray between black and white. And in fact, between black and white is every color of the rainbow. We want leniency. We want people to have second chances. We want somebody to you know, turn a blind eye to things when it's right. And if AI comes in and is just black and white binary on every decision, then I think we failed. On the other hand, if AI is black and white binary, that might be a stereotype of AI that prevents it doing exactly what we need it to do. And you mentioned explainability as an issue, and it is a very hot topic in AI right now, because in order for AI to make difficult decisions that we nevertheless need made, like, should we give a loan to this person? What kind of insurance premiums should we charge this one? It has to operate in this fuzzy, uh, quasi-intuitive mode where a human could explain their decisions, but it might be after the fact. They intuited an answer, you ask them to explain it, then they make up an answer. AI may be put in exactly the same position. Now, when AI develops to the level where it could be operating as, say, a judge, as you mentioned, by that point, we might be anthropomorphizing it to the extent that we don't expect binary decisions of it. We might even be expecting too much of it. You can take a calculator and put fuzzy ears on it and people will suddenly start relating to it as though it has feelings and uh, awareness that, that don't exist. We are strange that way. Yes. It was hard to cut off the interview at that point because we were in full flow, but we did go on for another half an hour and we would be pushing download boundaries and attention spans. So once again, I think we'll just keep going this way. The second half of the interview is in next week's show. Richard mentioned something called the Kardashev scale. Not Kardashian, Kardashev, which bears some explanation. It's right in line with the sort of expansive, ultra-long-range thinking that he was doing because it measures the degree of technological mastery that a civilization has over its environment at a truly mind-boggling scale. It was devised by a Soviet astronomer, Nikolai Kardashev, in 1964, and it has only three levels, or types, on it. A Type 1 civilization has control over all the energy on its planet. A Type 2 civilization has control over all the energy in its solar system. 
and you can Google for a Dyson sphere to see how that might be possible. And type 3 is a civilization that controls the energy in its galaxy. And as far as we can tell, that hasn't been done, but we haven't looked at every galaxy yet. On this scale, we are about a 0.7. Talk about a tough grader. In this episode's news segment, I want to start talking about GPT-3, although by no means will I be finished here. GPT-3 is the successor to, wait for it, GPT-2, although I'm not aware of a GPT-1. But GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. It's an AI with some amazing capabilities. Version 2 came out in 2019 with quite some fanfare because the organization that created it, OpenAI, initially did not release the source code for it. That may not seem like a big deal until he realized that OpenAI is an organization that was created with the explicit goal of open sourcing artificial intelligence code so that cutting-edge development would be done in full view of the world. And the principle that, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow, would mean that problems or malicious code would not be able to creep into our AIs. So what happens on the first major software development from OpenAI, but that they said they had developed something so dangerous they didn't want to release it. They were too scared that it would be used to spread fake news, spam, and disinformation in ways that looked so much like the output of real people that normal filtering techniques wouldn't work. Now they changed their mind, and so far we haven't seen those kinds of application of GPT-2. You can try it out for yourself. There is one form of it at a website called talktotransformer.com. And you can enter a starting phrase there, and it will make up a few more paragraphs along the same lines. You can use it to write stories or papers, and it's quite compelling. Now here comes GPT-3 a year later. Both 2 and 3 are trained on a huge amount of text scraped from the internet, which forms their knowledge base. But whereas GPT-2 had 1.5 billion parameters in its model, GPT-3 has 175 billion which I want to point out is about twice the number of neurons in the human brain. But I hasten to add, that doesn't mean that GPT-3 has anywhere near human general intelligence. It is, however, instructive that we can now organize 100 plus billion of anything in artificial intelligence. If you Google for GPT-3, you'll see some examples of the sort of conversations that it's held with people. Although at this point you still have to be an approved researcher to do that. I've applied for a beta testing license. You can find a Dungeons & Dragons game driven by GPT-3 on the web, and it will make up a game on the fly that you are a character in and which can understand far more complex instructions than any computer game before it. I'm going to play this right now while I'm talking to you. It starts out by saying, pick a setting. It provides choices of fantasy, recommended, or mystery, or apocalyptic, or zombies, or cyberpunk, or custom, or an archive. I'm going to go with fantasy. Now it wants me to select a character, either a noble, princess, knight, wizard, witch, ranger, squire, peasant, or rogue. I like the sound of rogue. It wants me to enter my character's name. I will go with James Bond. It's not exactly fantasy, but let's see what happens. 
It's generating a story. And it says here, You are James Bond, a rogue. Living in the kingdom of Larion, you have a long steel dagger and a length of rope. So you recognize the kind of genre we're in here. You walk down the city street looking for somewhere to steal from. You look around and see a barn with a side door open. You walk inside where you find two elderly men sleeping in a hayloft. Now, bear in mind that it is making this up on the fly based on what it has read of similar things on the internet. So, what do I want to do? I'm going to tell it that I shout hello at the men. And its response is, you shout hello at the men waking them up. You wake up both men and ask them what time it is. Now, bear in mind, it couldn't have predicted this. This is not like your usual Dungeons & Dragons computer game where there are only a limited number of choices. Its choices are limited only by what it understands about the English language. Now, in an attempt to trip it up with pronouns and references to other parts of the story, I say, I ask them what the biggest threat to my quest is. And it responds, The two men tell you the town watchmen are always on the lookout for thieves like you and that the guards patrol the roads. You bid them goodbye and set off down the road. Okay, so you get the idea here that we're in new territory with GPT-3. Give it a go yourself. We're still not at the level of artificial general intelligence, but GPT-3 raises the bar enough that we need to rethink the utility, meaning, and parameters of the Turing test. Because as it stands, Turing's formulation of that as something that fools more than 30% of the judges into thinking a computer is human within five minutes is going to be cracked soon at this rate. The Loebner Prize, which attaches money to the Turing test, raised those numbers to 25 minutes and half the judges, and so far nothing has gotten there. But GPT-3 may be within hailing distance of it which would say more about the inadequacy of the Turing test standards than it would imply that GPT-3 had general intelligence. We will talk more about GPT-3 in future episodes, I'm sure. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.